Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good to see you tonight. We're going to be in Genesis, as you know. So turn in your Bibles to chapter 13 of that book. Father, whether it's a time of crisis or need in our own lives or in the lives of others who are far away from us geographically, it is our instinct to come and to pray first, to depend upon you first. That's a good thing. It acknowledges our source is in you, our strength is in you, and all of the resources that we or anyone else may ever need ultimately come from you. Lord, we want to help. We want to get mobilized and help those who are in a desperate situation tonight. We pray you'd give us the wisdom to act wisely and circumspectly. We pray, Father, that tonight as we read your word, that we would be equipped for whatever need might creep up in our lives or in the lives of somebody around us that we work with or live with or come in contact with suddenly, we pray that these principles would shape the way we view our lives so that we might be able to provide good and solid and reasonable spiritual answers and thus become a resource to those who are floundering. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1994, I had a friend who owned a McDonald's restaurant, and his was the one that was sued because a lady who had coffee spilled the coffee on her leg, and it created a huge fiasco. And the net result of that, besides millions of dollars that was awarded this lady, because though there was a warning label on the cup, I guess it wasn't big enough, Now the warning labels are quite large. If you look at a McDonald's coffee cup, it almost like says, Hey, you, yes, you, reading this right now, this stuff is really, really hot. I don't think it says exactly that, but the idea is that the label is very pronounced. Warning label. Well, I decided to go around and look at some of the things that I had and read the warning labels. Because I know that... um, They know that they could be sued, and to avert or avoid that, they want to make sure that the label is um, like over-the-top obvious. So I have a little list of some of the things that I found. Um, I got my chainsaw and read the warning label. Do not operate chainsaw while upset. I guess they saw that old movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My favorite hot sauce comes from Belize. It's called Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce. The warning label reads, Warning, must be strong to handle this sauce. Keep out of the reach of children. Do not play tricks on the weak or elderly with this sauce. That would be really cruel, wouldn't it? Here comes Grandma, quick. (laughs) On one brand of hair color, I found this on the Internet. (laughs) And the website is 101 Dumb Warnings. And one of them says, on a brand of hair color, do not use this as an ice cream topping. Those sunshades, you know, the ones that fold for the car that you put in the window so that the heat in the summer won't tear up your dashboard? Well, the uh, label read on it, remove shade before operating vehicle. (laughs) That's the secret. A blow dryer warning label said, do not use while sleeping. An iron, Rowenta Iron, had this as a warning label. Warning, never iron clothes on the body. <laughs> Boy, you got to be in a hurry. 
and a mattress company had this warning label. Warning, do not attempt to swallow. What, a mattress? How is that possible? Is this like for whales or something? I think that if Abram could have looked back on the episode that happened in chapter 12 when he ran away down to Egypt, he would write a warning label that would say, Warning, doubt can be hazardous to your and everyone else's health, spiritually and in all other ways. In fact, maybe Abram himself should have worn a label, a warning label. Warning, disobedient patriarch, stay away. Now, in all fairness to old Abe, he was just learning to walk by faith. He was called from a pagan culture. He was just getting his sea legs, so to speak, on the ship of faith. He was a baby believer. He was learning how to walk. He was learning how to trust. But... Chapter 12, the last part of it, the second half of it, represents an episode of doubt where he leaves the land that God told him to go to because there was a famine in the land of promise and he goes down to Egypt for help. He is called in the New Testament the father of them that believe. And I am just so thrilled, as I mentioned last week, that he has a lapse of belief. And he could also be called the father of them that be lying, because he lied about who his wife was, said it was his sister. Yet, he's given that great light, that redemptive light, that merciful light by the New Testament, the father of them that believe. You and I are also learning how to walk. And though we are people of faith and we trust and we believe in God and we believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, we also falter and fall and fail. And there's mercy for us. We're learning. You know, children have a natural, I would even say a supernatural, like built into them by God, Desire to believe in God and trust in God. It doesn't take much for a child to trust God and believe in God. But at the same time, because they're children, their doubt is also very accentuated. And so when a child, though in the realm of faith, begins to doubt, it can be very, very deep and fearful and severe. They're all over the map. They're they're not mature yet. They're not stable yet. I remember when my father was trying to teach me to dive off the diving board at a local swimming pool where I grew up. I just couldn't trust him. He'd never let me down, but he said, Son, jump. No. You'll be okay. No, I'll die. No, you won't die. I promise you, you won't die. I promise you, you'll only get wet. In fact, I promise you that I'll catch you. No. And I'm sure it was an embarrassment as everyone around us thought, what is wrong with this kid? sad part of it was I was 35 years old when that happened. I'm just kidding. But eventually, I jumped. And eventually, Abram comes to, spiritually speaking. And now in um, chapter 13, he goes back. He returns to the land of promise. I would think that the one lesson we learn, and I think Abram would agree, in fact, I think he would state this with all of his heart, that it's better to trust God in your life when the cupboards are bare than to be in the land of abundance outside of his will. He has now learned the lesson. He's done with Egypt. And so we read in chapter 13, verse 1, Then Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. That is the south of the promised land. They're going up from Egypt to the south of the country to the north of them. They're in the Negev desert. He went up. 
Before it said he went down, and that was true geographically. I think it was also true relationally, spiritually. Any movement away from God's will is a step down. It says in the book of Jonah that God told him to go to Nineveh. It says Jonah went down to Joppa and then down into the ship. And eventually he went down into the sea and down into the belly of a whale. He went down, 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 down. And it was only when he was thrown up by the whale that he decided to live not the downward life, but the upward life of obedience. And he went to Nineveh. And Abram comes back and he goes up. Abram, it says in verse 1, was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, this is the very first time in the Bible, and I like to make mention of that whenever we come to first in the Bible. This is the first time in Scripture that riches is mentioned. And it's mentioned in relation to Abram, the first patriarch. Now, something we discover in looking at what the Bible says about wealth. The Bible looks at money not as being bad or being good, but being neutral. It all depends on how a person is affected by it and what a person does with it. That is the importance. Now, someone will say, oh, but Skip, you know, the Bible says in the New Testament that money is the root of all evil. No, it doesn't say that at all. It never says that money is the root of all evil. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is a root, that is one of many roots. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, that that sheds a whole different light on that picture. Because you can be without money, but still have a love of money and fall into trouble. Or you can have a lot of money by God's grace, God's blessing, and it doesn't affect you as much as somebody who, if they had that, it would destroy them. Read the testimony of those who have become suddenly rich, like the lottery winners. I've seen reports over the years, and it's the same report. Most people who get to be lottery winners will say, after they get the money, after months go by and after years go by, the worst thing that happened to me is that I won the lottery. I now don't know who my friends are. I don't know if my family loves me for what I might give them or if they just love me because I'm a part of the family. Now, sometimes it is God who blesses. And it's a result of the blessing from God. Job was wealthy in livestock. And in chapter 1 of Job, it's listed the, the camels and the cattle that he owned and the sheep that he owned. He was the greatest man of the East. Now, he loses it all, but later on it says that God gave him much more at the end than he had at the beginning. So he's blessed and made wealthier by God, a blessing from God. Joseph, though experienced a difficult time at first, became second in command in the world, the prime minister of Egypt, and became very, very wealthy. So sometimes it's because of a blessing of God. Other people are rich because not God blesses them, but they abuse their power or they steal the money or they do it through their own hard work and it becomes a God that they serve. Now, Abraham was very rich, and the Bible makes clear that... um, At least in part, it was the blessing of God. Having said that, riches can also become a problem. Though you have Abram who is rich, and consequently you're going to discover Lot, who is his nephew, also has a lot going on financially, that it becomes a problem. And a conflict arises over the stuff that they own, the things that they have will become the center of the conflict in just a little bit. So, Abram leaves Egypt. And you should know something, that Abram left Egypt wealthier than when he went to Egypt. He went to Egypt to escape the famine. He lied about his wife. Pharaoh gave him a whole bunch of 
stuff because Abram said, that's just my sister. So uh, Pharaoh loaded him down with stuff and he's coming back in part with more stuff financially, though he's been taken to the woodshed spiritually than he had when he first went down. Why is that important? Because to me, it's a prefigurement of another group we're going to read about in the book of Exodus. That's the children of Israel. The children of Israel will go down to Egypt because of a famine. They will, for 400 years, be in that land. They will multiply in terms of population, but they will be, they will be persecuted by the Egyptians. But they will leave after plundering the Egyptians with much more than they came down with. It's just God's way of adding to that. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, which means the house of God. That will be the name given to it in the future by Jacob. But it's referred to before Jacob is ever born because the people who would read Genesis would be familiar with that place based upon the new name that they were aware of. As far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Bethel means house of God. That word Ai or I, that little town, means heap, heap or dump. And so here you have Abram pitching his tent between the house of God and the dump. He's coming back from Egypt. He's pitched his tent going toward the house of God, toward Bethel. That's where the altar is. That's where he's going to worship. But in in the previous verse, in verse 3, he's pitched his tent between the dump and the house of God. Now that's the same position you and I are in. We have been saved out of this world. We are on the way toward heaven. That's our real home, the house of God where God dwells. And we're sort of in that in-between position between the dump of this world and between the house of God that we're moving toward. But in verse 4, he gets to Bethel. And at Bethel was an altar that we saw at the beginning in chapter 12. That he made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, he did not call upon the name of the Lord while in Egypt. There is no reference to him either pitching his tent or building an altar. He was just escaping the famine. Here he goes back to the altar. So, he remembers where he had come from. The altar of worship that he was enjoying with the Lord in chapter 12. He remembers that. He repents from what his unbelief had caused when he went down to Egypt. And then he repeats what he did at the beginning in worshiping God at this altar. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot like what Jesus will tell the church of Ephesus in Revelation. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works again. Remember, repent Repeat. That's exactly what Abram does. He remembers the fellowship he had with God. And while he was trusting God, that was a much better place than Egypt. He repents of the unbelief and he goes back and does again what he did at the beginning. Boy, what great counsel that is to us. Maybe tonight you have experienced a distance between you and God. And maybe you look back to a time when you had fellowship early in the morning with God. You got up early and read your Bible and you think, oh, it was so good. It was so sweet. But over time, you have distanced yourself from that primary activity. You're not experiencing closeness anymore. Could it be that the Lord is calling some of us back to Bethel, back to the altar, repenting from whatever brought us away from that? And cause that distance. It's unfortunate that some of us have to talk about our relationship with God in the past tense, not in the present tense. It's not like, man, is it great with God. I just love the fellowship. I love hanging out with God. God speaks to me. But, oh, I remember at one time way back when 
But it's not like that anymore. And so what is the solution? You remember, you repent, and you repeat. You do those first works again. So if you have stumbled, like Abram, there's always an altar that is waiting for you to come back to. Verse 5. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. So he also has a lot of stuff. He's also very wealthy. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. So, though there's nothing wrong with wealth inherently, in and of itself, though that's okay, and sometimes God can even add that and bless you with it, here it becomes the source of the conflict. We have so much stuff. I have so much stuff. You have so much stuff. We have so many animals. you got so many animals. And the land that we're trying to share together just can't support it. So we have to split. Or, you know, my herdsmen are going to hassle and harangue your herdsmen and the bickering is going to go back and forth all over stuff. Stuff is interesting. We all have stuff. Some of us have more stuff than others. And I mean, we stuff our stuff in boxes. If you have ever moved, you know this principle. You have stuff in boxes. You never get it out. You never look at it. You never care about it. You don't even know you have it until you move and you look in the place you stuffed your stuff and you go, huh, I have stuff. Now, if you have a family, a wife, a husband, children, they have their stuff. If you try to do something with their stuff, Oh, well, you get in trouble. Hey, that's my stuff. Yeah, but you haven't used that for like 10 years. So it's my stuff to do something with it or not do something with it. Leave my stuff alone. Now, the truth is, a lot of that stuff you won't see again until you move again. And it can become a source of conflict, as it is here. Something else. They're not alone in the land. It's not just their livestock that has to be supported by the land. It notices also that the Canaanites and the Perizzites, these two other groups, dwelt in the land. So not only will my family and your family have a tough time being supported by the infrastructure of the land, there's other people around. But I think that the Holy Spirit is informing us of something else. Here there's a conflict between one group of God's people and another group of God's people, and the world is watching. The Canaanite and the Perizzite are watching Abram and Lot very, very carefully and hearing the bickering and hearing the arguments. And whenever the dirty laundry of the church gets aired in front of the world, the church is in a real mess. It's dangerous. It's wrong. We always have to be careful who's watching, who's listening. Canaanites and Perizzites are all around, and they are looking, and they are listening. I heard about two women who worked in the same office. Both of them were Christians, and both of them worked by a window. And one of them said, I want you to keep that window closed. If you you open the window, it gets so cold, I'm going to catch pneumonia. And the other lady said, I want you to open that window because if you don't open that window, it's, I get claustrophobic and, and, and uh, there's no circulation. I'm going to die of suffocation. So they argue back and forth and back and forth with their Bibles on their desk, back and forth. <laughs> One day, a gal from across the hall came over into their space. An unbeliever, after hearing this for a long time, said, I got an idea. Let's keep the window open till you die of pneumonia. And then we'll close the window so you can die of suffocation. That'll be the solution. 
You can feel her pain. What made it worse is both of them claimed to be believers. Now, here is Abram, a man who has a covenant relationship with God and simply by virtue of the relationship of uncle to nephew with Lot. He is also seen as one of God's people. But from the story, you and I know differently. From the story, you know that Abram, though he's imperfect, is walking with God, while Lot doesn't seem to be walking with God at all. He seems to be walking not with God, but with Abram. For back in verse 1, it says, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him. Abram's obeying God, Abram's walking with God, Lot is walking with Abram. He's tagging along. He's tagging along, but he has different appetites. He wants something else. He really wants what the world has to offer, which you will see in chapters 13 and 14. Two different men, two different sets of values, longing for two different things. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Boy, that's a, that's a wise thing to say. He's older and he's wiser. I heard a story about Michelangelo and Raphael, two brilliant artists who were hired by the Vatican to beautify the Vatican with their art. And you can see it today. It's still there. It's magnificent. They worked in different parts of the building. Both brilliant, both creative artists in their own right. However, over time, a rivalry began to break up out between Michelangelo and Raphael. And this bitter rivalry resulted in even when they would meet up They wouldn't even talk to each other. The ironic thing, of course, is both of them were working, quote, for the glory of God, unquote. While all of Rome watched the rivalry between these two artisans working for the glory of God, not getting along. So Abram just nips it in the bud. Hey, let there be no strife. I don't want to be a troublemaker. Man, I want to be a peacemaker. So look at the solution. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Isn't that beautiful? Hey, Lot, no bickering, man, no fighting. We're brothers. There's more to unite us than there is to divide us. Therefore, in grace, you pick, man. You just take whatever you want. Because whatever you don't want, I'll take that. You can choose that side, and I'll take that side. If you want that side, I'll take whatever you don't take. It's a beautiful example of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each of us esteem others better than ourselves. And that's what Abram is doing with his nephew Lot. And it's going to pay off. I want you to watch how it does. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes. Notice that phrase. He's looking up. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and something's going to catch his view. And he saw all the plain of Jordan. That is the Jordan River Valley, which is beautiful. There's underwater springs that feed vast miles of land for irrigation and growing things in the river itself that supports it. He lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. Now notice this, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. And then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Lot looked up, and what did he see? He saw something that reminded him of Egypt. He reminded him of Egypt. In fact, it's even mentioned, it's like the land of Egypt. He had come from a spell of being in Egypt at the Nile River Valley, which is very similar geographically, topographically, to this Jordan Plain. He had left Egypt, but he hadn't left it in his heart. He wants something that reminds him of that security blanket that he had while he was in Egypt. 
That's what he wanted. So he chose that for himself. Now, it seems to me that Abram repented because he remembers, goes back to the altar, sacrifices to the Lord, that Abram repented, but that Lot simply returned back to the land. But he wants something that reminds him of Egypt. So here's the problem Abram has. You can take the boy out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the boy. He wants what he left. He's a tag-along believer. Now, there's a lot of people like this. They're raised in church. They'll go to church because they've been raised in it. And they tag along with their parents or they tag along with their wives or tag along with their husbands. But they really love the world. That's their preference. They love the world. Their appetite is for the world. And you can't have both, James says in James chapter 4. Whoever is a friend of this world is the enemy of God. You can't love the world and all of its security while loving the Lord and all that he has. And it polarizes both these men, Lot and his uncle Abram. And so it says, Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. Not like, you know, I just like a part of this plain. I want it all. That's the prettiest looking thing ever. I want it all. And he chose it for himself. And they separated from each other. Notice this. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. And before you think, well, he didn't know how bad Sodom was. The next verse says, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now we're getting a little insight into Lot. If I were to compare the two, even though I said Abram wasn't perfect, you have the choices of a wise man versus the choices of a worldly man. Abram the wise man. Learned his lesson from Egypt. Been there, done that. I've repented. Lot, a worldly man, a worldly businessman, thinking of what is best for himself and best for his family. Abram, on the other hand, instead of choosing for himself, is sort of saying, I trust your promises, God, and I'll let you choose for me. Lot lifts up his eyes and sees the plain of Jordan and goes, ooh. But now watch this. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I give you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered Arise, walk in the land, through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Very different from Lot. I think Lot was flirting with temptation. He pitched his tent all the way towards Sodom. Boy, I love this plain of Jordan and Sodom. You know, a, a lot of stuff going on in Sodom. A nightlife. A nightlife. He was flirting with temptation. He should have been fleeing from temptation. Now, a lot of people flee from temptation, but they leave the devil their forwarding address, if you know what I mean. They don't really separate all the way. Lot and Abram separate. That's good for Abram. It's bad for Lot. Lot does it for the wrong reason. Now, as far as Abram concerned, it's good for him. And here's why. Back in chapter 12... We're informed that while Abram was down in Ur of the Chaldees before he made that long trek toward the Holy Land, that God said, get out of your country, leave your family and your father's house. He didn't completely obey. He still brought those with him, father and nephew. Social responsibility, I understand. But it was an incomplete obedience and it will bring trouble as time goes on. And we're about to see that. But it was a problem for Lot. Um, notice again verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, 
after Lot had separated. Lift up your eyes now and look to the, from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. You see, Lot looked out and saw what the world had to offer. God comes along and says, let me lift up your eyes and let me show you what I have to offer. So one chose for himself, the other left it up to God and discovered when you let God choose for you, it's always better anyway. What God will choose for me is better than anything I could choose for myself. And so I love that, that his faith, his trust, his, his leaning toward God is, is rewarded here. Hey, I know he lifted up his eyes, but now let me lift up your eyes and look everywhere you see. You see north? Yeah, wow. Clear day. Beautiful. You see down south, west and east? It's all yours. And it's better than anything you could choose for yourself. Now, did you notice that in verse 15, Lot is now separated? That God talks about your descendants forever? Oh, wait, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in chapter 11 that Sarai couldn't have any children? What descendants? Im- embedded in this promise is the promise that he's going to have a child. That he's going to have an heir, and the heir will be from his own seed, from his own body. Hence the word descendants. So God gives him a promise. Number one, you're going to have children. You're going to have descendants. Number two, the covenant of the land that I'm giving to you is everlasting. It's perpetual. It's not just you. You and your descendants, which become the Jewish nation forever. And number three, part of the promise, for the land which you see, I, oh, verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. They will be innumerable. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through the length, through the width, for I give it to you. Now, in a few months, I'm going to have the opportunity to do this with some of you, to walk in this land. And we'll do a lot of walking. We'll we'll be on our feet a lot because there's so much in the Bible about walking through the promised land and walking on the walls of Jerusalem. And it's such a small country, you know, it's the size of New Jersey, maybe a little smaller, that you could actually walk across from border to border, east to west, in one day. You could walk the entire width of Israel today in one day, by foot. In fact, in grade school, they do that with the kids in Israel. They go on a hike and they walk from morning until night. They walk through the whole border of the land. Now, north to south, it's quite a bit longer, but that's okay. And I'm not saying I'm going to make you walk in one day through the whole land. Well, you're thinking, I don't want to go on this tour. We'll be in an air-conditioned tour bus. But we'll be able to cover a lot of ground and look north and look south and look west and look east and see what God promised Abraham and his descendants. And we'll see the fulfillment of the promise. It will absolutely blow your mind. So that's my pitch for take the tour. Come with us. And Adam and Adam and Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre. That's down in Hebron, not far from Jerusalem. Oh, it says so, which are in Hebron and built an altar there to the Lord. So they separated. For Lot, a bad thing. For Abram, a good thing. A good thing. You and I in the New Testament are called to be separated from those who are not walking with the Lord. And probably one of the um, keynote scriptures along those lines is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah and says to God's people, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my children. It's that call to separation. For, you see, sometimes if we have the wrong company 
And they don't share a spiritual value system and they don't hunger after the Lord. They hunger after Sodom and they hunger after the well-watered plain of the Jordan. It could drag you down. It's hard to be around the company of people who are dragging you down spiritually. And so the Bible encourages us to get around those who will build you up spiritually. And to use discernment and discretion and to separate. Let me read something to you. I found it um, while I was studying. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just tell you where it's at. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, but it's a beautiful scripture that says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Notice this. With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Be with people like-minded who love Jesus, who love the Lord, who pursue Him, and your own faith will be built up. If you're only around people who are dragging the other direction, they'll drag you in that direction. And so, He dwelt, chapter 13, verse 18, that beautiful green spot um, of Mamre in Hebron, and there He also built an altar to the Lord. And it came to pass, in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Kederlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of the nations, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Birshah, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all of these joined together, In the valley of Sidim, that is the salt sea or the dead sea, 12 years they served Kederleomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Chapter 14 brings to us the first international crisis, the first war, if you will, mentioned in the Bible. It is against four kings and five kings, or four kings are against five kings. There are... uh, Shemite kings or Semitic kings, uh, five of those, and four Hamite kings from the eastern part of the province around Babylon. Here's the deal. For 12 years, a group of cities down by the Dead Sea, and again, if you come to Israel, we'll be driving down by the Dead Sea and you'll see some of the remnants. For 12 years, the cities that were down in the plain, the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley, paid tribute paid money, paid taxes, to a guy named mentioned here, Kederleomer. In the 13th year, those cities got tired of it, and they said, forget it, we're done. We're not paying you a dime. They rebelled. That brought a coalition army against them from Babylon toward Israel. It's not the first time. <laughs> Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is talking about doing that again today and rooting out Israel and destroying Israel. So way back in the beginning, this stuff was happening, and it will happen time and time again throughout the Scripture. So they come. Now, here's the deal. The story is told because Lot is a part of the equation. Lot happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now Abram must come and rescue him, and he does that by night. But let's go through the story. And, by the way, it says... Uh, the Valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Notice that in verse 3. It's called the Salt Sea because the Dead Sea, that's what the Salt Sea is. The Dead Sea is 32% saline solution. That's about 10 times more than any ocean in the world. You can float on the Dead Sea. If you don't swim at all, you could still effectively swim from Israel to the country of Jordan just by floating on your back. It'll keep you buoyant. Twelve years they served Kederleomer, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kederleomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Kernaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, just in case you were wondering, and attacked all the country 
of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazezon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the battle of the valley of Sidim against Keterleomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of the nations, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot. Uh Uh-oh. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. Notice now he's living there. And his goods, and he departed. Now, have you noticed the steps as we read? Number one, Lot saw Sodom. Second, he separated from Abraham. Third, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. He probably thought, this will give me good advantage for my family. There's a lot going on there, a lot of good infrastructure there. I need this for my family. He made a choice for himself, probably family included. Now, number four, he's living there. He's dwelling there. He moved in. And it's a wicked city. And they're against God, but he's living in it. It gets worse. In chapter 19, he's sitting at the gate. He's a politician of Sodom. Nothing wrong with going into politics, but to be the mayor of Sodom is a problem. He's one of the elders at the gate. He's one of the lawmakers, the political bigwigs of Sodom in chapter 19, verse 1. So Lot takes several steps downward, and now he's in trouble. He gets captured. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, notice that designation, first time we see that, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol, brother of Aner, they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that, his brother was taken captive, He armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So Abram goes on pursuit. 150 miles north he travels with 318 trained servants. They're trained for battle. And he has a strategy. He's going to attack them at night and ambush them. And he will win the battle because of his strategy. Okay, he's got 318 trained militiamen, which is a large staff, but a small army, against the armies of four kings, four nations. So it is like the odds when Gideon, with his 300 men in Judges 7, do you remember, against the 135,000 Midianites, completely outnumbered, but God gave them the victory. That's what it's like. Interesting thing about Abram. So far, I read that Abram is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. He wants to make peace with Lot. He wants to make peace with people around him. He forms alliances with people in Canaan. But here... Though he's a peacemaker, he goes to war. I believe it would be accurate to say that Abram loved peace enough to fight for it. And sometimes peacemakers need to fight to bring peace. Now, the easiest solution whenever there's a conflict is to be a pacifist. That's the easy way out. Oh, I don't believe in fighting at all. I don't believe in in raising a weapon in in any direction for, for any purpose. Oh, it sounds so noble, but it's not. Abram loved peace enough to fight for peace. And sometimes you got to do that to be a peacemaker and to maintain the peace in a broken, fallen world. Francis Schaeffer wrote a lot on this subject, and he said something profound. He said, I am not a pacifist for this reason. For me to be a pacifist in a fallen, broken, evil world 
would mean that I would desert those people who needed my help the most. Okay, so let's put it in real life. You're downtown. Seemingly nobody's around. As you walk out of a theater or a market, but you see a big burly guy bullying a little girl, pushing her around, hitting her. What do you do? Mr. Pacifist? Well, I negotiate. Okay, so what do you do? You walk up and say, Sir, please, don't beat that little girl. That's just not nice. Come to your senses. You know better than that. Shame on you. (laughs) And you wait for a response. The response isn't favorable. He says, get out of my way or I'm going to kill you first, then I'm going to get her. You keep persuading, you keep trying. At some point, if he is bent on her destruction, if you show, if you have any kind of love at all in your heart for that little girl, you must do everything in your power to stop him. That's where pacifism breaks down. That's where activism must be engaged. That you love peace, in this case, enough to stop evil. And that was Abraham's whole position here. He has 318 trained servants. They're members of his own household. They were his servants. They were his staff. But just in case we get into a, a, a problem, I want you to be trained for war. And now he deploys them to the battlefield. In the work, verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now, this has got to be the most unusual story so far in the book of Genesis, what we're about to read. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of the of God Most High in Hebrew El Elyon, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth." And he blessed God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. This guy named Melchizedek has never been mentioned before. He just sort of comes from out of nowhere. His name, Melchizedek, comes from two words, Melech and Tzedech, a king of righteousness. That's his name. It means king of righteousness. And he is the king of Salem, which will become Jerusalem. The word Salem means peace, so... He is the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He brings out bread and wine. He worships God most high, El Elyon. He's monotheistic. And Abraham pays tithes to him. Amazing. Who is this guy? We have a problem because, number one, you have a Canaanite king who's monotheistic like Abraham. Up to this point, we would think only Abraham is that way because God spoke to him in Ur of the Chaldees and revealed himself to him. Could it be that God revealed himself in the same manner to this Canaanite king named Melchizedek? Don't know, but that's the problem we face. You have a monotheistic king and a polytheistic Canaanite culture. Problem number two, he's a priest. Kings and priests were never the same. Um, later on, when the kingdom is developed, it will be Judah that will be the kingly line and Levi, a whole other tribe, that will be the priestly line and never the twain shall meet. They're to be separated. So are we now to infer that there was some sort of priesthood going on in Jerusalem at the time of Abraham before he met him? Don't know. You see, it's just a wild story. To complicate it even more, we come to Psalm 110, and we have to because the writer of Hebrews does in the New Testament. It's a messianic psalm. 
It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, for I have made you a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, chase it down on your own, verses 1 through 10, shows that Melchizedek is of a higher order than the priesthood of Levi and Aaron, because Abraham paid tithes to him. Uh, Paying tithes is a symbol of worship. It's a symbol of submission. And so here's Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews says that uh, Levi, Aaron, those guys who will form the priesthood, aren't even born yet. They're only in the loins, so to speak, of Abraham. And they paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, signifying that this priesthood is of a higher order, a superseded order than that of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. So, who is Melchizedek? Three guesses. Number one, some people say it's Shem, the son of Noah. Some people say it's a Canaanite king who is monotheistic by some supernatural revelation. Number three, some people say it's Jesus Christ. This is uh, appearing in the flesh, a pre-incarnate form of Christ, Uh, called a theophany or a Christophany, uh, appearing in the Old Testament because he's called King of Righteousness, brings out bread and wine, which you'll find in communion, and he is the King of Peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without length of days, that's what Hebrews says. So um, three interesting interpretations. Uh, Don't have the time to develop it further and tell you what I lean toward. Uh, Because it's just, well, look, we have one minute left. But it says he gave him a tenth of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, or Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. So Abraham Abraham has taken all the spoils and given them back to the cities that were robbed by Keterleomer. The king of Sodom, I already read that, verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. Yahweh is the word, Yahweh the covenant name of God that will be given to Moses. I have lifted or raised my hand to Yahweh, God Most High, or El Elyon. So here is Abram equating Yahweh with the God of Melchizedek, El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It seems that he had taken an oath before this battle. Something like this. Lord, I'm about to go fight these kings. I know I'm outnumbered. But if you would give me the victory, I promise to give you all of the glory. And if he were to take money for this from these kings, then people would have said, oh, that's why he did it. He did it for the remuneration, for the financial reward. He said, I I never want that said, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. You see, Abram is remembering Egypt. He remembered taking the spoils from Egypt because the Pharaoh had given him all this money and all this stuff because he said that his wife was his sister. And he's thinking, don't want to repeat that. I think at this point... George Beverly Shea's famous song would be very appropriate for Abraham to sing, or Abram to sing. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I don't want anybody to say, anyone made me rich. And then he just says, just give me the spoils that are needed for those who are with me. And that's it. Okay, conclude with this. Here's the warning for us. Number one, Be careful with your vision. Be careful with your vision. Lot saw what the world had to offer. God showed him what he could offer him. You might say that Lot looked down before he looked up, while Abram looked up before he looked down. Be careful with your vision, what you set your eyes on. Number two, be careful with your values. What you value, where a man's Treasure is, the Bible says, there will his heart be also. Lot had a tent 
and no altar. Abram had a tent and an altar, but the altar was more important than the tent. The worship was more important. Watch your vision. Be careful with your vision. Be careful with your values. And number three, be careful with the choices that you make. Be careful with the choices that you make. Lot made a decision for himself. Maybe for his family. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. So he made a choice based upon which what would be best for his family. Here's the, here's the ironic thing. He loses his family. Later on, he will lose his family. He's going to go to Sodom and, and he's going to have to flee Sodom, but his wife is going to turn back and he will lose his family. So if he made the choice for his family, he lost his family. Abram made a choice based on God's promise and he got a family bigger than he could count. More a number than the dust, more a number than the stars. And he was unable to have a child. But God did it. Now could it be that some of you tonight need to return to Bethel? Come back to the Lord? Rededicate your heart to Him? You've left, you've gone to Egypt, you've looked at the well-watered plains of the Jordan, and, and, and you're trying to get fed and nurtured from a worldly source. It's come up empty. Maybe tonight would be the night where the Lord would bring you back into alignment with himself. Let's pray for that. Father, as we close this service, as we close this Bible study, and we acknowledge that you are El Elyon, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. We have worshipped you as such in the beginning. We have made our declaration We have raised our hand to you. But Father, it could be that some have come, maybe even been drawn tonight, who have left you and need to return to you. Who are tagging on, but they still love the world. Father, we pray that there would be a wholehearted commitment tonight of lives and hearts returning to you or coming to you for the first time. As our heads are bowed, as we're thinking about what has been said and what the Holy Spirit has been impressing upon our own hearts, if you're here tonight, And any of those words describe you, either as one who has never come personally to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been to churches. Maybe you've been religious. Maybe you've been a good person, a seeker. You've wondered about things. You see something and feel something tonight that compels you. It's God's Holy Spirit drawing you. Or maybe you have left for a period of time. You've gone down to Egypt. You've made your decisions based upon things for yourself rather than following God's best and highest. And you need to come back to Him. You're just tired of trying so many things that don't fulfill. You want peace in your heart. You want forgiveness. If either one of those describe you, then I want you to raise your hand up as our heads are bowed so I can see your hand and I can pray for you as you are dedicating your life to him or back to him. Raise it up so I can see you. God bless you toward the side, in the back, in the front, in the back, way in the back, right up here in the middle, toward the front, and again on the other side, and again on the side. And over here to my left, and in the family room, and in the middle on my left side, in the balcony, a few of you in the balcony, and in the back. Father, we pray for these, and we pray that the commitment would be wholehearted, felt deeply from within and that you by your spirit would enable this commitment to be an ongoing enjoyed permanent one where you keep these by your grace close to you and you provide whatever is needed 
Lord, I pray that for some as they begin their new walk of faith and for others as they resume it, you would blow them away with what you can do in a life and a heart surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up? As we sing this final song, I saw so many of you raise your hands in the balcony and in the family room and right up here. I now want you to make it public. And I want you to get up from where you're now standing, either come down the steps if you're in the foyer or through the door if you're in the family room or just through the aisle and stand right up here. Come quickly. You know who you are and you know what your heart needs. You know, there's a lot of different belief systems in this world. A lot of different religions. Only Jesus Christ can give forgiveness, can heal your broken heart. Because He died for your sins. God bless you. We're about to pray, and there's a lot of people who've come forward. Anybody else in these just final moments, you're thinking, yeah, I need to do that. I need to surrender to Him. Anyone else? Just get up and come. Well, a lot of you have come, and we're so thrilled that you did. Now I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud after me from your heart to our Lord as you give your life to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me. I trust that Jesus died on the cross and that He rose from the dead and that He did it for me. And so I give you my life. I turn from my sin. I turn to you as Savior to follow you as Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me your power to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.